0: Alright, good morning. Once again, we're going to give thanks to the Lord uh, for Sunday. We can come together as a family to worship Him. This year, our theme is uh, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told from Creation to Christ. We realize that every story in the Bible is not there merely to teach us moral lessons, even though that's important, but really is unveiling the love story of God, His redemptive plan. So in January, we saw how... Sin entered the world, and God promised the seed of the woman who would come and save us. And then we realized in the seed comes from the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's where we left off last week. In March and April, we're looking at the people and the land. How did they grow from a family of Jacob to a, a nation? Uh, how did they get a promised land? And then next month, we'll look at the king and the prophets. So today, we will... Look at the Passover. Now these are some significant events. Those in grey will be skipping over. Um, so we'll not be talking about the Exodus, but right at the end of it, what happened, which is the Passover. From Exodus chapter 12. So let us pray when we begin. Lord, we commit this time to you. We pray for the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts that we will hear you speak to us. We will see Christ lifted up and Father you glorified. May the Spirit warm our hearts and draw us towards You, turn us back to You. Thank You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in 2019, Brian Willock, he was giving a speech in Washington, D.C. at the second annual Freedom March. And he was addressing a group of ex-homosexuals and transgender. And he said, 16 years ago, I was totally immersed in a homosexual lifestyle, pursuing a life of porn, lust, and sexual gratification. Even though I was deeply convinced that I was born this way, but deep in my heart, I was unhappy. I didn't think this was what God had in mind for me. But how was I going to walk out of a life of homosexuality, which I held on tightly as an identity? It was difficult but it was even harder to walk away from a life of porn, lust, and sexual gratification. And then he shared, he said he first pursued the homosexual lifestyle openly when he moved to the UK to study and stayed on there to work on a TV, a British TV show. He said, I thought I was free, far away from my family. I was free to do whatever I want. And so I started dating men, one after another. And I was a regular in a gay scene in London. So it was during that time I wrote. I had this entry in my journal, and I wrote. So today I brought home a colleague that I met, and we hooked up. I couldn't believe I've done it again. Will this be my last time? Then he said, even though the feelings were real and it felt good. It says, I couldn't imagine in 20, 30 years' time living with another man and feeling fulfilled and happy. That night, I had a dream. God gave me a vision. I was married to a woman, a medium-built woman with long brown hair, and we had three kids. I could clearly see the face of the oldest. She was a girl who had long, beautiful brown hair like a mother. She had flowers in her hair, she was dancing and twirling, and she had a brightest smile on her face. You know, when Brian Willock shared this, he was expressing his desire for freedom. He thought when he uh, pursued his homosexual lifestyle freely, he was truly freed. But he found himself in bondage to his desires. So what is freedom? I mean, we want freedom, but what, what is freedom? What do we want freedom from and what do we want freedom for? That is what I would like us to consider today from Exodus 12. When we look at the Passover story, the context of the Passover, the content of the Passover and the Christ of Passover. And so from this Exodus 12, we understand, we will look at this Passover and from there understand the concept of freedom. In the Passover, we see the redemption and justice of God. At the end of the day, someone dies. There's either a slain lamb or a slain son. That's the Passover story. Now, when we ended Genesis last week, we found Jacob and his family of 73, right? If you don't count uh, Joseph's family in Egypt. How did they grow from 73 people to a nation? See, through a famine, God brought them to Egypt. And because they were shepherds, the Egyptians didn't like shepherds, so they left them in isolation in Goshen. Uh, they didn't assimilate and co married them. And so, they continued to multiply. 430 years later, they grew to millions of people, although they lived as slaves in Egypt. It was time for God to bring back them back to the promised land. But Pharaoh would not let them go, right? Because they are slaves. Can you imagine all the slaves suddenly leave? The whole economy will collapse. And so God sent 10 plagues. Each plague got more and more severe as Pharaoh hardened his heart until the last and final plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. So let's jump into Exodus 12, the 10th plague. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God says, if you believe me and have faith, then respond in obedience. Kill a lamb, put the blood over the door and when my spirit comes, I will pass over it. Otherwise, the firstborn shall die. And we go, wow. Why God so cruel? You know, want to kill firstborn. Now, before we go there, let's understand the context of Passover. God says, "This plague is against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment because I am the Lord." Why? You see, the ten plagues: the Nile River turning into blood, the plagues of the boils, you know, uh, the locust plague, the day turning into night, and finally, the death of the firstborn there were strikes against the gods of Egypt. Egyptians has a lot of of gods, okay? Nile God, Sun God, Harvest God, Fertility God. And so, in these 10 plagues, God was proving that He was superior, that He defeated all the gods of Egypt. Now, why did He have to do that? Well, God was going to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt, right? And they asked, who are you? And so God is trying to show them, I am the Creator God. The God, the one true God. The God who has defeated all the gods of Egypt. He proves that what? The conclusion is, I am the Lord. So, the 10 plagues were against the gods of Egypt. Secondly, He said, I will claim all the firstborn, both man and beast. Now, in our culture today, right, we feel that each one of us we are responsible for our own actions. Okay, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, one person, you affect your whole family. Your actions affect your family, okay? The firstborn belongs to God. He he represents the whole family. So later in Exodus 13, God told them, He says, Now when the Lord brings you to the land of Canaanite, as He swore to your father and forefathers, He's bringing them back to the land where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob walked and God promised to give them. He gives it to you you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. The first of every beast that you own. Males belong to God. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. If you do not redeem it, you then you shall break its neck. The, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. God said He claimed the firstborn. If animal, you know you can redeem with a lamb. If not, offer it as a sacrifice. If it's human beings, you redeem it with money. You'll go on to say how you redeem the firstborn, because the firstborn represents the family, and God is telling them, All you have belongs to me. He's establishing the fact that He's the Lord God, the one true God, the Lord of their lives. Finally, He says, When He goes through the land of Egypt, realize that God is not differentiating between the Hebrews and the Egyptians between males and females, between good and bad, between the free and the slaves, between human beings and animals. Everything and everyone that stands before God will face His wrath. Why? Because His God, a God who is perfectly just and righteous. Anything less than perfect will face His judgment. And we say, can, can God don't be like that, you know? Just a bit of sin, just close one eye. No, cannot. Okay, if God closes one eye, a bit of sin, He doesn't exact a punishment or payment, then He's not perfectly righteous. And if He's not perfectly righteous, He's not perfectly God. God, For God to be God, He's perfect. What that means is being perfectly righteous and just. He exacts payment from anything less than perfect. But God is a God of redemption, a perfect love He redeems. And so on the Passover, in one stroke, God shows them He's perfectly just and righteous. At the end of the day, something dies, right? Either the animal dies, you paint the blood, or the sun dies if you don't. And we respond out of faith. When you have faith, you obey, you respond to God. Now, you may think, why is God so cruel? You know, all this firstborn, and He just takes a life like that. Andrea Dilley, uh, her parents were missionary to Kenya, and so she grew up there. But because she was surrounded by a lot of pain and deaths, when she, in the early twenties she rejected the whole notion of Christianity. Years later, in a conversation with a young man about objective morality, she came back to the faith. Today she's the editor of Christianity Today. So she shared her story. She said, When people ask me what drove me out of the doors of the church, and then what brought me back, my answer to both questions is the same. Because I was mad with God about human suffering and injustice. And I came back to church because of that same struggle. Where did she struggle? I realised that I cannot even talk about injustice without standing inside a theistic framework. What does it mean? To talk about justice, you have to talk about objective morality. To talk about objective morality, you have to talk about God. She's saying that if I didn't believe in a God, then morality is not objective, right? It's subjective, relative to you and me. And if that's the case, then what is evil and injustice? is merely my own preferences. Which means I cannot stand on that ground and say, see, God is unjust and therefore I criticize God because I don't even have the right to say what is truly unjust. And we say, okay, if we don't believe in God, then, then I live by my own morals. Now, what does that look like? Imagine you have a GoPro with you, you know. You record everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said on that camera, right? And then at the the end of the day, when you're old, you you play back all the videos, what would you see? Friends, we will see that even by our own standards, we fail. We say we don't want God, we have our own standards, but even with our own standards, we will fail. We will do what we say we would not do, and we will not do what we say we will do, because that is our sin nature. We are never truly free. We are in bondage of our sin. We say by our own moral standards, I will do good. I will love people. But you know what? We have blind spots. Often we hurt the people around us the most, but we do not realise it. And so even by our own standards, we fail. But you say, wait a minute. If I don't believe in God, then even my standards, they're relative, right? So what if I don't live up to them? So what? Now, can you imagine if a lot of people think that way? Can you imagine if a whole nation thinks that way? That morality is relative. Philip Yancey says, we don't have to imagine. He says, just think about the former Soviet Union where thousands upon thousands of brilliant men and women are so committed and dedicated to build a society based on the singular notion of atheism. To such a society, religion is a problem. So they closed 98% of the churches at that time. They killed 42,000 priests. The national newspaper is called The Godless. And children from a young age were, 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 were taught to distrust God. You know, kindergarten teachers will ask the children to close their eyes and pray to God for candies. Then they open their eyes, no candies. Then again, they are instructed, close your eyes and pray to Stalin, their leader, for candies. And then the teacher will put candies on the table. You open your eyes and voila, candies. What's the moral of the story? That you do not trust God. You trust our great leader. In the 75 years of his reign, you know what happened? 65 million people were killed. On the average, 3,800 people a day were killed. And that's more than the number of people who died on September 11, you know. The whole society eventually collapsed under the corruption of human nature. And so the editor of, of that godless newspaper, he said, with the best intentions, we ended up creating the greatest monstrosity the world has ever seen. Dostoyevsky's prophecy, without God, everything is permitted. Proved tragically true in a nation's history. If morality is relative, if there's no God, then everything is permitted. And this editor, when he reflected on what happened to his own nation, he says this was tragically true. And so scripture tells us there is a God. He created us, he is perfectly righteous and holy, but he's also perfectly loving. Hence the Passover showed us that you know, God is just, but God also redeems out of His love. Because at the end of the day, something dies. There's either a slain lamb or a slain son. Now, can this lamb, this cute furry creature, really stop God's wrath? Now, of course not, Right? If you think can, then something wrong with you. Of course not. Then why? Well, let's look at the content of the Passover. What actually happens? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It shall be the first month of the year to you. See, God wanted them to form a nation. To be a nation, what do you need? A land, right? So He's going to bring them back to the promised land. You need laws. In The wilderness God was going to give them the laws. Now you need a new calendar. The kingdoms back then, they have their own calendar, okay? Not like today, universal calendar. So he said the Passover shall be the first month, January. Okay, it's not January, but the first month of the year, okay? This marks the beginning. <clears throat> Speak to all the congregation of Israel. This is the first time in Scripture that the Hebrews were called Israel. Remember, before that, they are called Hebrews, the tribe. After this, the nation of Israel is formed. They will be known as Israelites. And then finally, Jews from Judah, okay? So, the congregation of Israel is saying to them, on the 10th of this month, they each are to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So they choose a lamb. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbour nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each person should eat, you are to divide the lamb the lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Choose a unblemished, a perfect lamb. Why? Now again, I said, we know a cute, furry creature cannot save us and so it is point a deeper, more significant meaning and hence, this unblemished male refers to a perfect sacrifice because of God's perfect righteousness. So you choose one and you shall keep it till the 14th day, means you keep the lamb in your house for four days, from 10th to 14th, right? Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Why? I mean, you know, to kill a lamb, just kill a lamb, right? Why bring it to your house, stay for four days? So that you can take care of it, you know, can clean up the poop, you can sayang it, you have some feelings for it, you know, it's not just a random animal. It's like killing your own pet. Can you imagine? You kill your own dog, take the blood, put on the, the, the top, and not only that, no. you don't just choose the lamb, you kill the lamb, you have to eat the lamb. And you go, ew, you eat my dog? That's exactly how we are supposed to feel on Passover. If you're so disgusted having to kill our pet, can you imagine God feeling how he felt when he killed his son? Moreover, you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. You shall roast the flesh on the same night, roasted with fire. You shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Leaven represents sin. Unleavened bread because it's saying, I'm bringing you out of Egypt. Leave the old life behind, the life of sin, of slavery. You are new, a new nation. Bitter herbs reminds them of their bitterness, 430 years as slaves in Egypt. So eat it together and then Don't eat it raw like the pagans who worship their deities or boil it with water but rather roast with fire both its head, its legs and all its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. You have to follow God's instructions strictly. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hands you shall eat it in haste it is the Lord's Passover. Gird your loins, put on sandals, hold your staff, and the other hand, eat. Why? Because you are leaving, because God is going to rescue you out of Egypt. Now you find it so difficult, you know? You have to follow whatever God says, put the blood, then eat in this way. Wow! Well, last month or two months ago, when we look at the story of Noah, we already showed that God's salvation is exclusive, right? And I've explained, actually, every truth statement is exclusive. It's just what trait statement you subscribe to. Even your statement that there's no truth is an exclusive statement. God shows us, because of His perfect righteousness, His salvation is exclusive. It's either my way or no way. How dare we ask God, can hey, you don't like that? Right? Because He's perfect. And hence, He gives us a way. We either choose it or we do not. And God says, this is my Passover. And then He explains, which is what we read earlier. What happens? I'm going through the land of Egypt on that night, strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, everybody, both men and beasts. And it is against all the gods of Egypt I execute these judgments. I am, to prove I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will be you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then, it says, this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. This is every generation, you are to celebrate it until today. This is about 1500 BC. Until today, is about 3500 years and they are still celebrating Passover. Now, what is the Passover? It's to remind them that God save them out of slavery to give them freedom. And every year when they celebrate it, they say, God, do it again. Do what again? Are they slaves now? No, right? So what were they hoping for when they observed Passover? It is for God to deliver them, to give them freedom out of sin and death. The ultimate freedom. That is what Passover means to them. But how is that possible? A furry little creature dying give us freedom. No, of course cannot. But like every story in Scripture, it points to the greater and the meta story, the story of salvation, the story of Christ. Because in Christ, we realise He is the Passover Lamb. The Lamb that was slain is the Son who would die and resurrect for us. You realise that? on the Passover, there's either a slain, slain lamb or a slain son. But in Christ Jesus, we realise the slain lamb is the son. That is why, in the Lord's Supper, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, you know that it's a Passover meal, right? In the Passover meal, what's important? There are three very important elements, right? The, the cup, the, the wine, the bread, the matzah, and the most important, the lamb, right? The main cost. You know, how can you have a, a meal without the lamb? A, a while ago, I went to a wedding dinner. And you know, wedding dinners are very expensive these days. Your ang pao is about $150 $200 at least, okay? So we gave ang pao, came down, sat around with my friends, and then we saw the tag vegetarian. It's said, what? <laughs> it was vegetarian? He should have told us before that, right? Maybe you'll give less. <laughs> I didn't say that, okay? Actually, I did, but it's okay. Okay, so we were grumbling, and then the food came, okay, then, wow, oh, got roasted duck. So I took the drumstick and started eating. Then we were saying, wow, this vegetarian duck, very real, you know, tastes very good. And then because I had the thigh, the, 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 uh, the, the right, they have the bone, and I looked at it, there's actually bone marrow. And I said, wow, this vegetarian restaurant, very detailed, even have, have bone marrow. And then my friend came along and said, sorry, it's a wrong tag. It's not vegetarian. No, that's how we felt, right? When we say, Wow, we no, we, 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 dinner? Don't have meat, vegetarian. Likewise, if you go to a Passover meal, there's no lamb. Can you imagine disciples how they felt? What? No lamb? That's exactly how they felt. But actually, I think that was a lamb, okay, just that it's not recorded. But the three elements of the Passover. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover meal while they were eating. Jesus took some bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. Take eat, this is my body. Then he had taken the cup, given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgive, for many for forgiveness of sins. First is the cup. In the Passover meal, there are four cups of wine they drink throughout the meal. The third cup of redemption, the father would pray and say. Therefore, we are bound to thank, praise, glorify, bless, exalt Him who did all these miracles for our ancestors and for us. For He brought us forth from bondage to freedom, from sorrow to joy, from mourning to festivity, from darkness to great light, from slavery to redemption. Amen. So when Jesus took up the cup, this was what His disciples were expecting Him to pray. But Jesus said, this is my my blood the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Which means all the bondage to freedom, sorrow to joy, mourning to festivity, darkness to light, slavery to redemption is made possible by the blood of Christ. The fourth cup ends the meal and Jesus said, I'm not drinking with you until the new heaven and earth. Until the wedding of the lamb. And so that Passover meal never ended. And friends, every time we observe the Lord's Supper, which we are doing today, we are transported back to that Passover meal with Jesus and His disciples. The intimacy with Christ, the thanksgiving of what He has done for us, and the hope and anticipation of the new heaven and earth where we will drink the fourth cup with our Lord, the bridegroom who comes for the bride, His church. The second element, the bread, matzah, which is the unleavened bread, Before they eat the bread, they will say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we can be free. Jesus took the bread and says, this is my body, broken for you. This is my affliction that I go through so that you may gain freedom. Jesus' body is unleavened bread without sin. You know, there are three pieces of matzah the father will take the centerpiece, break it into two. The larger piece he will wrap it with a paper and then hide it somewhere, like a game. So during dinner, the children will look for it. If they find it, they will be rewarded. But usually, they cannot find. Okay, at the end of the meal, he will take it out. It's like a dessert or after meal bread. It's called e. Afikomen. And we know the Passover meal is pregnant with symbolism. And if you think about the unleavened bread, Jesus himself, when he died, for three days he was hidden away. But three days later, He reappeared when He resurrected. He is the true Matzah. Through Him, through His afflictions, we have freedom. And then finally, the lamb. As I said, I believe during the meal they will have lamb. If not, the disciples will grumble, okay? But in all the inspired records in the Gospels, there was no mention of the lamb. Why was there no mention of the Passover lamb on the table? Why? Because the true Passover lamb was sitting at the table. He was not on the table. Jesus Christ was referring to himself when he instituted the Lord's Supper, the bread, the cup, the lamb, where? Himself. And thankfully, he didn't include the lamb. Okay, it's not every time we have Lord's Supper, we have to eat lamb. But in reality, we have eaten the lamb. When we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are eating the lamb, taking him in. And so when we look at Scripture, the most common imagery use of Jesus is the lamb. First Peter says, He was a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This reminds us of Passover, right? The unblemished Passover lamb. Revelation said that, It belongs to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. When the world was created, the Lamb was already slain. How does that work? I don't know. But it demonstrates the love of God that right from the beginning, He wanted to save us. His redemptive plan was not an afterthought. It's not because we fell into sin, no choice. God already knew and the Lamb was slain. And one day, we will all gather and worship the Lamb. You know, in the resurrection, we will see Jesus as the lamb that was slain. His body still bears the marks of the nails. Why? I don't know. But it says, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. You and I, one day we will stand before Jesus Christ and we will worship Him like this, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. When we read the Exodus account, we see the lamb. You choose to choose a lamb and becomes the lamb, and finally it becomes your lamb. Likewise, in Jesus Christ, He is not just a savior among many; He is the savior. He is not just the savior where we intellectually assent and accept and believe that yeah, there's only one savior. No, you have to take Him in to your heart, affections, my savior. And the question for us: Where are we? Is Jesus just a saviour to you? One of the ways where you, ex- you can experience prosperity and goodness and life. Oh, you see, the saviour, the one and only way. But friends, it's not just the one and only way. It's the way that we have surrendered to, we have taken Him in, we have eaten Him and saying that He is my saviour. The Passover shows us the justice and redemption of God. The purpose of it is to free the people from slavery. And that is the central part of God's story. To give us freedom. Freedom to live for Him. Freedom to, to pursue holiness. Uh, Paul says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. In fact, you are unleavened. He says, you are already made new. For Christ, our Passover lamb, have been sacrificed. We have... We are a new creation. We are freed. Freed from our bondage of our sin, our addictions, things that cause us to be shameful, things we have done wrong or said wrongly, our unforgiveness, our unwillingness to let go, our discontentment, our frustration with God. But we are freed from that. Freed for what? Freed for life. Freed to experience freedom, His peace, His joy. Freed to pursue God's will. free to be the person God has intended you and I to be. Freed to be loved. And that is why in the first Passover meal recorded in Scripture between Jesus and His disciples, Jesus performed the miracle of 5,000 and called Himself. He declared He is the bread of life. He came to give us life. In the last Passover meal where He instituted the Lord's Supper, He washed His disciples' feet. Jesus came to serve us, to seek and save the lost. And this is the gospel. The gospel is not just that we are saved, but we are saved to live in freedom. Do we experience this freedom? The joy of the Lord. Joy because we no longer have to live up to the expectations of others. Joy because we know while we still struggle in our flesh and sin, we are freed from the condemnation. We have intimacy with our Creator. You have this freedom, you know. Brian Willock, in his sharing, he said the first thing he did when he returned to the US was to look for a church, a Bible believing church. He got involved in the church, in the Bible study, and say over the years, the gospel gripped his heart. He realized God has a plan for him, a good plan, and began. To understand, he, to, to desire and pursue God. And he says, one day, I wrote a covenant before God. He took out the nicest paper he could find, a nice fountain pen, and his best handwriting, he wrote, God, I want to live for you. I will get rid of everything that reminds me of my old life. I want to glorify you. And he says, every day, I read this covenant twice. Once in the morning, once at night, and then I will sign my signature. During the 2019 rally, he took out the covenant that he has laminated, and it was covered with his signature. And he said, as I prayed over the years, God allowed me to experience freedom from my sin and desires. Freedom to feel his love. And someone asked him, oh, does it mean you prayed and you became straight? He said, no. As I prayed My focus was on what God desired rather than what I desired. That I knew I was loved and so I was willing to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Him. Friends, is that not what the gospel demands? And it's not just in our sexual desires, it's in every area of our lives to deny ourselves, carry our cross and follow Christ. Are we following our Saviour, our Passover lamb? And then he shared, he said, a few years later, I got to know this woman called Pam. She had long brown hair. Seven months into our dating lives, I decided I needed to tell her my past. I dreaded that day, I didn't know what to do. And so we were walking along the beach, I said, let's sit down, I have something to tell you. And I just blurted it out, there, it's done. And after that, I didn't dare to look her in the eye. I was just waiting, was she going to slap me, scream at me or break off with me? after a moment of silence, just one moment, but to me it felt like eternity, Pam said, wow, thanks for sharing with me. It must been, have been a very difficult journey for you. Then she smiled and asked, do you want to go eat some ice cream? And I was shocked, speechless. And then I asked her, don't you want to let me scream at me or break off? And she said, No. She says, all I see before me is a godly man who loves God. I might have some questions in the future, but you know I have a past too. We are all sinners. And then she added, how about the ice cream? Today they are married, they have three kids. The oldest is a girl with long, beautiful brown hair like a mother with the brightest smile on her face. You know, I'm sharing this story. Am I saying that, oh, because we believe the gospel, we'll be freed from sin, uh, you, know, you homosexuals will become heterosexual? No, that's not my point. And I think you guys have heard me preach over the years enough, already seen, right? Ultimately, it's not that, oh, we'll all be victorious. Yeah, I think we'll be victorious in the new heaven and of the ultimate victory. But now, we can get a glimpse of victorious life. But what's more important is the journey. The journey that we wrestle together, we struggle together, we are able to share openly, I mean, just in the past prayer meeting, as I was sharing, you know, these few people I've shared with, we were just, you know, the, our last prayer meeting was Psalms 51. They were sharing about, with their struggles, how they struggled with uh, their sinful desires. You know, and, and these were straight people. And you realise we all have struggles. We all have sins. What's important is, this is a family that we can be authentic with that we have people we trust to share our brokenness and struggles, but we journey together because of what Christ has done. You know, one day, when we come before Christ, or rather when we bring our brokenness before Christ, our addictions, things that cause us shame and pain and unforgiveness, when you repent and bring it before Christ, you know what Jesus would do? he will show us his nail-pierced hands and he will ask us, do you want to go get that ice cream? Let's pray.